Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Oyi Chu, the newly announced CEO of Adex. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Did I get that wrong? <laughs> Thank you so much no, for no, joining no. us. No, no, I wanted to say hello, and then I we sort of <laughs> it's okay. cry. It's okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this today. How are you, by the way? I'm very good, Michael. Great to be on your show. It's great to have you, and it's great to have you back. You know, normally this is the place where we say, let's get some of your background. But you've already been on the show. Darius has already been on the show. I think people know you really well. And I went back and looked, right? The last time you were here was May 2021. Why do I always feel like, yeah, I know, it feels like dog years ago. It just feels like yeah. so long ago, no? Yeah. It's, wow, really? Yeah. I, I mean, it just feels like a few weeks ago, a few months ago that we had this uh, conversation. So, it, it well, does, right? much would have changed. <laughs> <laughs> a lot has changed. And by the way, congratulations on the announcement of becoming the CEO. Do you, it feels really significant to me, right? And I'm an outsider looking in and I'm an outsider even regionally, right? I've been in Asia for 30 years, but I'm not Asian per se. But I feel like, you know, if I put all these little components together, a female CEO, it's like a benchmark setting company. It's digital first, it's blockchain based, it's a financial institution in Asia, just do you feel a little bit like this is a significant thing, separate from the company itself, but just of the overall environment? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've never thought about it that way until you mentioned it. Uh, I think it's partly because I've been with the company for two years, right? I right, mean, two right. years in startup land is a really long time. Um, but also because, you know, I was always part of the senior management decision making yep. anyway. And so in seeing the company grow and the complexity of how our business has grown into, I think it was a very natural transition uh, and, and a very natural sort of reflection of how uh, both Darius and Danny needed to focus um, at a holding company level right. and to reconsolidate the operations because you know, it's not, uh, as I said, it's not just the technology build out. It's also the legal compliance team that's working very hard, the commercial team, the marketing team. And this is all warehoused within Adex, which is the licensed uh, company. And it gives um, Danny and Darius the room to really think about non-Singapore um, affairs. So for example, what we do in China and Japan, they then free up from the day-to-day uh, business to be able to think uh, where the international aspirations might be. Can you talk about that a little bit? Maybe, maybe even just in general terms of what the parent company, I think it's ICHX Tech, right? So Darius was promoted to be the chief strategy officer, if I have this correct. Yes, that's right. right. So right. what is, what does the strategy look like to them at, at a high level and how are they looking at moving into China or operating bigger in China and in Japan as well with both sound very exciting to me. Let's just say the um, Singapore uh, reflection of that. And because we are very international right. and we're working with Tokai uh, in Japan, we're working uh, you know, with our China partners and Thai partners, but there's so much more uh, that could be done and they are opening up accounts with us. They are structuring deals for distribution into their own client base. And of course, this came with a lot of regulatory work ahead of that, right? Yeah. So we already see that momentum and the advancement in our international approach. But I think longer term over time, uh, for example, in China, we have quite a long way to go because we have the quota 
But um, we also need to build the infrastructure to be able to manage that quota because it's, it's an onshore quota that is allowed to invest in offshore products. But that requires a, a banking and a, as well as some of our products need to be licensed separately in China before that can be done. So there's still a lot of work there. Japan, I think, is a continual get the regulators comfortable with the different product sets. Uh, Thailand is the same. So um, all that is sort of happening. And then, of course, there's the concern of do we build locally? Do we just keep Singapore as the core? And that's a constant question we have with um, our partners, because do we have a local version for language and, and other local product reasons? Right. It's interesting that you mentioned Thailand. As you know, I live in Bangkok. And on my ride over to my studio today, I noticed, and I see this a lot now, there are advertisements for crypto and crypto style investing everywhere. And I'm curious from your perspective, right? We talked about the last time we spoke was in May of 2021. It's now almost April of 2022. Do we feel like the market has matured a lot in the last year to where it actually is now moving out to the masses? And again, not just in financial centers like Singapore, Tokyo, Shanghai, Beijing, but into other places as well, where real people are really paying attention to this in a way they might not have been a year ago? There's so many things in that question. Yeah. I would say crypto is a very interesting one. I think the world is so quite polarized as to, you know, the regulation, what's allowed, what's not allowed. In Thailand, they seem to have leapfrogged and opened up uh, crypto investing in a very big way. Uh, Singapore has done a slightly more cautious approach. So while retail can invest in crypto. Um, there are a little bit of few advisories around not allowing crypto to be advertised. Right. In different markets, they're reacting in, in different ways, right? Either you're sort of completely ban it like China, completely permissible in Thailand and shades of gray in between. Now, um, that's on the crypto side. And what's happening is people are not realizing the uh, digital security side is also a place that's starting to grow. Um, but that's always because crypto was always in front. Right. And the blockchain technologies and the technologies that are enabling what's happening today are a little bit at the backstage. It's now, I think, increasingly moving towards front stage because of the potential transformational effect that blockchain has on traditional securities and the private markets in particular. So I think that each of these regions uh, are planning to have securities tokens law or harmonization of those laws. And so we see that happening uh, quite rapidly in this region. Do you see the regulators working together? And I want to get back to this other question in a second, because you pointed out a little bit of a misstatement in my terminology, and I want to get back to that. So thank you for doing that, by the way. But just initially, do you see the regulators working together? This idea of harmonizing the way the regulations work is actually kind of important, yeah? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I, well, internally in Singapore, the synthesizing of uh, digital securities has been quite clear for a long time. And actually, that's why we exist and we think we're very much a leader in this space. Right. Uh, not everyone is aligned yet. So, for example, Thailand has gone full digital asset, but uh, less clear about digital securities. So the big question is, is a digital security, a digital asset, which is like crypto, or is it a traditional security? Right. Um, that's an interesting debate. So different regulators have different alignments. I think what's going to be even more confusing at some point is how crypto is going to be regulated and therefore what are the ancillary 
uh, effects on digital securities. So somebody said to me, in some parts of the world, it may be a store value like a, like a you know an MRT card, right, where you have stored value. And some people are saying, well, maybe it will be regulated as securities. And some people, you know, so some people are saying maybe it will be regulated like a commodity. So I think that's where we really need to have a far more coordinated view across nations how crypto should be regulated because so, i worry about the consequential yeah. effect on digital securities but this is actually a really interesting conversation and i hadn't thought about it in these terms until you just said that so work with me on this a little bit the dollar itself as just a currency is a store of value just like the euro is just like the yen is just like the yuan is right but it's also a commodity if you consider it as an FX pair, which is regulated completely differently than the pure currency itself is. And the dollar is also the traded currency where oil is traded, which is a commodity. And in its relationship to commodities has its own regulations about how it can move around the world and stuff like that with anti-money laundering. Like, so like when you go to a store and buy something with Singapore dollars in cash, there's no regulatory environment around that. But if you went to buy oil, there would be, and I'm wondering if you think that the answer to the question of how crypto is going to be used, it's really interesting what you said, is going to be all of those things. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, exactly. And um, it, it will be extremely complex. Yeah. If they're treated differently in different countries for maybe the same Bitcoin. <laughs> right, right, right. And that's the point I was trying to make, right, is that if I go into Louis Vuitton in New York, I can just use dollars. It's the same way. And it's the same regulatory environment as if I do it on Orchard Road. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So if Bitcoin or some other currency or cryptocurrency is treated differently, it will feel strange, I think, to people yes. at some level. Yeah. At some level. And, and, you know, let alone, let's not even get into the complexity of not just the coins, but what is a stable coin? Right. So we... We desire, I mean, that's just from vested interests coming from a regulated perspective. We think that there are still a lot of ways to go, both digital securities and digital assets in terms of regulating and clarity of that regulation. Of course, the second level desire is to have that relatively harmonized across the countries. Even if they don't speak to each other, they should be relatively similar yeah. so that you know exchanges can eventually for example, like ourselves, can do cross-border work relatively seamlessly. Because right. once you start having different uh, structural regulations, how does, for example, if I'm an Asian-based exchange and I want to connect to maybe a U.S. tokenization exchange, but if we're different, the same token, how is it being treated? Right. You know, crypto back something, like how is that being treated? So it's, um, it's something to watch. It's really something to watch. So can we talk about both of our histories in the financial services industry, like in traditional financial services businesses? In the old days, right? And I think it's really interesting for you and for people that are operating in your space because you're literally like standing on one Wall Street in the 1900s trading stock. And it's not, but you understand the context, right? Like trading stocks by hand, writing stuff down on a piece of paper. And, and then once everybody else starts getting involved, the regulators locally, hyper-locally, said, wait a second, we've got to figure out how this market actually works so that people can be protected with their investments on both sides. But because information didn't travel around the world instantaneously like it did today, 
you know, the FSA in Japan could make different regulations because the, the Tokyo Stock Exchange was completely disconnected from the New York Stock Exchange. That's no longer true. Yes. Right? So the, this idea that you, with your partners, are literally like standing on the street again trying to figure out these regulations is kind of cool, but the speed is just different, right? The accelerated speed is just different. How, how does that feel like to you? Because you're helping build these regs, no? Well, I hope so. I think, I hope we have some influence and I hope that what we do um, with, with the blockchain, it's not just about the tokenization, you know, people come to me and go, oh, you know, in the many tokenization platforms, I'm like, okay, what do they do, right? right? But hopefully what we do and regulators should, I think, be conscious of what blockchain can deliver as business models. Therefore, they have to think about how do we deal with, let's say, a fund, a partners group fund that's tokenized, Right. on an addicts exchange. We influence, I mean, we obviously have uh, our partnerships with MAS, we have partnerships with the banks, and I think we've been around long enough so that people understand our modus operandi and, and we, we get along a certain way. I mean, there are still minor tweaks, right? If we work with a bond issuer and let's say, you know, a bank uh, buys that bond and puts it on his book, is a tokenized bond the same as a bond? You know, it, it did need some level of questioning and clarity before MAS comes to some conclusion. So there is still a lot to go, even at the simplest level. Um, but I'm certainly very excited to be at the front seat of that. It's kind of cool, right? I like cool. to talk about how in sort of the early stages of my career on Wall Street, you know, fixed income returns, listed stock returns, People would still estimate somewhere between eight to nine percent a year over time. You would just get these returns if you did not. This was the estimation. Yeah, I like the I like the reaction. I don't disagree with you either. Yeah, I just want to frame this for a second. But over time, the arb disappears, right? The return disappears as more and more people invest. The ability to find great investments kind of gets smaller and smaller. So your expected returns for a public um, investments just get public and listed securities just get lower and lower over time. That's your expectation. And to the extent that expectations drive returns at some level, fair enough. But it, now if you're moving into privately listed securities that sit on exchanges like yours, the returns there, I think the expectations are that they're going to be higher. And as we see declines in listed returns, are you seeing more people and more asset managers from your perspective moving into the kind of things that you're doing, the digital asset space? I think that um, this space is, I mean, there's so much development in the private market space that may have contributed to this compressed return in the public space. Maybe. Hear, hear me out. I mean, one hypothesis. There are many hypotheses around the compression of return yep. in the public space, which includes there's a reduced information asymmetry. Uh, obviously, there's the information gets transmitted faster, more instantaneously. Uh, you know, the, the algorithms and the quant traders are getting in there, the cutting, you know, the cutting, obviously, the, the spreads by half, whatever that might be. But also that the private capital space has grown so tremendously. And what they're seeing is that every dollar of private capital, like super hyper grows a company, right? right. And so what happens is that companies become extremely comfortable staying private for a lot, lot, lot longer as well. So that the hyper, Sorry, returns, the hyper returns are actually in this side of the wall, not on the public side of the wall. Um, it is reflected also, I mean, when we look at our PE portfolios, they don't, I mean, they don't move so much. And I think that's why 
private companies prefer to stay within here, right? They're not, they're a little bit sheltered from what is the bloodbath that's happening in the, the public space, the public space yeah. you know, but they still get tons of capital. They still get a hyper grow. And um, a lot of the value is being captured in this space today. Yeah, I mean, you make a super good point, right? And that is that if we go and we just literally talk about smaller companies, right? You get seed funding, you get post-seed funding, you get pre-venture funding, then you get Series A, Series B. And sometimes once you, when you move into Series C, D, and E funding, that's literally what used to be post-IPO returns. And you're right, because people are waiting so much longer. Like if you go back and look at Apple and even Google when they went public, these were very young companies because the, their funding structure was different. They weren't on like an eight-year plus a two-year tail funding from venture capitalists per se. So they didn't have to wait that long. And then all of the, not all of them, but a lot of the returns that you said in hypergrowth went to the public investors. Yep. Well, that's changing. Yep. It's, a, it's a great hypothesis and a really great conversation point. Do you feel like the digitalization of assets is also broadening the type of assets. So in other words, we used to look at hedge funds, right? As alternative assets. Right? So now I can buy stocks, but I can sell stocks that I think are going to go down against them. And I can actually do, you know, zero cost trading for the most part. Let's simplify it a little bit, right? For people that, yeah. 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 Right. So I can sell something and I can use the proceeds to buy. There are other costs involved for sure. But their returns are also compressing, Right. And they're looking into venture capital and stuff like that. But are we thinking that there are other assets that can be digitized that can then sit on exchanges that could not have been invested or traded before? So do you see that broadening as well? I do. Um, well, in the first place, uh, somebody said to me, tokenization is going to be the liquefaction of illiquidity. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and what it's uh, quite interesting. I, I, it's not a big space yet. But Did so, they work at GIC, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. No, but anyway, we already see the liquefaction of the illiquid funds, right? Yeah. Private REITs, private equity, uh, and, and what does that serves a certain invest space, which is currently the high net worth individual, right? right. Because sovereign wealth right. funds don't necessarily need liquidity. They just need a returns. And they can do size, right? So we've already done that use case. But if you think about how that could be expanded into the alternative universe, the alternative universe already incorporates in some little way non-financial underlying, right? Um, like wines. Wine. Whiskey. <laughs> Why were you and I both thinking the same thing? <laughs> yeah, because it's a Friday. Um <laughs> or whiskeys, or luxury cars, right. you know, these are already sort of a lot of the high net worth already see them as investments, right? right. And um, how do you then potentially take a concept like that and expand the liquidity piece? Right. This is about liquidity, right? It's about liquidizing a portfolio of wines, which traditionally you could not, you had to buy if, And this, you know, made sense. This completely makes sense for obviously the higher end wines, not obviously the $40 type that I drink, but the $10,000 wines, well, you know, could five investors really sort of partner together and buy, a, you know, DRC or something like that, right? right. Just for the fun of the, the intellectual conversation or, you know, a Bugatti, you right. know, if a Saudi prince for some reason uh, wanted to sell his Bugatti, could there be a tokenization exercise so that, you know, 20 people own that 
yeah. car. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was partnerships. You said you've created a lot of partnerships over time. And because of those partnerships, there becomes this wider acceptance. I want to talk about a couple of partnerships specifically that you've made recently. And that is with StashAway. And I want to get this right with CGS CIMB. And maybe you can talk about the significance of those and sort of the movement and the maturation of the market and what those types of opportunities, not those specifically per se, but what those types of opportunities open up and what it means for the market growth in 2022, 23. I can't believe I said 23 since I feel like it was supposed to be 40 years from now, but it's not. It's next year. But you know what I mean? Like what those, what those new announcements that you're going to make and those new partnerships mean for them, but for the greater market as well. Yeah, I think where we were quite clear on our positioning is clearly we're an exchange, we, we have products, we list them. Uh, where the partnerships are quite powerful, uh, two ends, the firms that see themselves as advisors and see themselves as financiers, right? Mm-hmm. It's very complementary to our business. But um, every financial institution I mean, like ourselves, we'll take time to develop that trust and relationship, right? Absolutely. And what's happened is we've had, uh, fortunately now, two years of uh, working on products. We've shown that we can do them. We've consistently done them. We have clients for repeat clients. And I think once firms see that stability and the confidence of execution and the trust that we're doing what we're doing, we say that we do and we do it, then partners, let's say like Sashawi or CGSC, and be very comfortable saying, okay, I need to solve a problem, right? I want to find a private market supply. How do I do that efficiently and with a trusted platform? So right. I think that, I think point number one. Point number two is a little bit demand driven. Um, CGSC, IMB worked with us initially as an issuing partner. So they wanted to raise money, Interesting. Uh, three month capital. And over time, their clients started asking them for it. And so we worked on now what is a very, very good uh, symbiotic relationship where our investors and their investors come through our platform to invest in a three-month CGS CIMB commercial paper. Now, just today, I think, you know, in this environment, this kind of product makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, people are a bit risk off, you know how to, but 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 CGSCIMB has become that partner where they are manufacturing the product and actually their investors have demand for that. To them, to CGSCIMB, we are a convenient platform to execute that. So that's why I think this relationship, we've been working with CGSCIMB for I think over a year now. Right. And I think we're in the, you know, fourth or the fifth series of their paper. And then, you know, it's been smooth, execution uh, throughout. So it's, a, it's great. But isn't this like a watershed event in a way? Because, you know, commercial paper, it's like some of the shortest investments you can make, right? Except for having yeah. cash. Yeah. Except for maybe overnight money in cash. Yeah? yeah. But in a way, it's like the clients of institutional investors. So like you said, CGSCMB has already tested this with you, right? Because they wanted to issue. So they had enough confidence to do it. But then their clients started demanding it. But what they didn't demand, at least at the beginning, was these long, you know, 30-year bonds, right? So in a way, for them, isn't it like a test, like dipping their toe in the water first before they go off to the 10-meter the 10 board and try to do a backflip kind of thing? Yeah, do you know what I mean? So now that they do that and it works, and then they do it again, 
I interrupted you. Sorry. Go ahead. You know what I mean, right? Yeah. Well, it's and and it's not just their paper now. So they're actually working with their clients on other issuers of commercial paper. Right. And we will see. We'll you know see them move up the risk curve with their clients once they get comfortable with. Right. They understand the products that we have, so I think that's a great、uh, concept. I think the next wave I'd be great to work with them on are corporate treasuries, because we already see them organically come onto our platform to invest in these. So that's another part of that partnership, is that we are now opening a toolkit for corporate treasuries as well that want a you know liquid short-term position, potentially over time look at other things like private credit funds. Uh, so I think that's that's also where we're going with a B to B like partnership. Is there a sense out there because these are two partnerships that are really important, right? Stashaway is kind of a new type of asset manager founded by Michele Ferrario. I don't even know two years ago, three years ago, funded all the typical things that a startup does, right? CGSCIMB has been around for a long time, so I won't say they're at different ends of the spectrum, but let's say they're not on the same. They're on the same spectrum, but kind of not in the same end per se. Are other companies out there must be coming to you, say, like knocking on the door, going, "Hey, can we come to this party?" Like, is that already、yes. happening as well? Yes, yes, we see that. We have rebranded this、uh, business unit、uh, called Addix Advantage specifically for it. Got it. Because because of that, I think we're seeing a lot of reverse inquiries as to how to connect and how to offer our、mm. private market products with them. We're open to many many conversations, and it's not just. At the moment, well tech securities houses, as well as、uh, private banks. Of course, private banks take a, a little bit longer to onboard for、sure. you know regulatory reasons, and we see this trend is quite strong. In fact, you know we're getting reverse inquiries from overseas well tech to see if we can do things together as well. So we need to cross that cross border hurdle, but we've done it before, so I think that's not an issue. I mean, in my mind, the entire financial services industry, and like you said, <laughs> the reason why I asked you before whether the person who said this is the liquefaction of what do you say of illiquid Illic- assets, yeah, yeah, something、yes. like that, it's because、yeah. one of my favorite phrases when I was at Goldman Sachs was talking to one of the head traders at GIC, and he said to me, "Great traders anticipate the anticipations of others," so it sounded like the same kind of thing. <laughs> <to me. laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I so from my perspective, right? I see the entire financial services industry getting digitized, and I don't mean digital transformation in the same way that other industries are, right? Where they're just putting stuff into technology. It's all going to be digital assets at some level. But when that happens, will we see indices as well? In other words, like thirteen and a half trillion dollars is indexed to the S and P five hundred. That wasn't always true. But do we think that there will be indices for a whole other group of assets, whether it's, you know, digitized real estate somewhere, digitized wine somewhere, or even just some of the private assets that you're already listing and trading? Do we see indices growing up around this stuff too, locally, globally, that kind of thing? It has to. I, I think it has to. If if I had that vision of、um, where private markets will be and the size of the markets that will be digitized, doesn't matter exchanges, banks,、uh, what have you, and how that exists in a decentralized or centralized format,、uh, there has to be indices that are built around that. I think so.、Uh, if we think about the liquefaction, I mean, just think about the liquefaction of the illiquids. Once that liquefaction happens,、right. there will also be hedging. There will also be market making,、yep. the opportunities to think about indices alongside of that, and products exchange traded products alongside that is huge. 
we're very far away from it. But if my thesis is correct, right. then therefore that must happen. Yeah, I think we both agree on that front. And uh, I think we've had a killer conversation today. Unless there's something that I missed that you want to get out there, I just want to thank you again. Please tell me you'll come back. Maybe we can get Tani. Maybe we can get Tani back on. I mean, to come on first, like that would be great. Anyway, or you chew the CEO now of Addicts. Awesome to have you back on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Great to be back.